We'll open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. We are making our way through this first chapter, even if it be ever so slowly. But this is dense, rich, wonderful real estate in the living word of God. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to isolate our attention this morning into verses 7 and the first part of verse 8. Paul says, In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. We've analyzed the book of Ephesians in our introduction, and we have seen many commentators and scholars analyze this book from lots of perspective. Most people divide the book up into two halves, the first three chapters and then chapters, the first three chapters and chapters four through six, the last three chapters. And they tell us that the first three chapters are said to be doctrinal and theological in nature. And the final three chapters are said to be praxis or practical in nature. Now, there is some structural truth to that because the majority of the commands or the imperatives show up in chapter 3 and go through chapter 6. The majority of the indicatives or the statements about theology show up in chapters 1 through 3. But though this may be structurally true in analysis, I don't think it should mislead you into thinking too tightly about this. We said this when we studied Romans. Some people say the first eight chapters are theological. The last eight chapters are, are practical. Not exactly. And the reason is this. Yes, there is a lot of theology in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And yes, there are a lot of imperatives or commands in the last three chapters of Ephesians. But don't be mistaken. All theology is practical. And all Christian practice must be theological. If we separate our knowing from our doing, or our doing from our knowing, we'll quickly slip into error, either theologically or ethically. Said another way, theology without application is mere theory. It's just musing. And trying to make application for the Christian life without theology is mere moralism. Well, here in chapter 1, verse 7, we come to a profound theological truth that has deep and abiding consequential practicalities. Now, backing up and looking at what Paul is doing here, he explains to us all throughout this epistle that the gospel is loaded, I mean loaded, with blessings that are magnanimous in wonder, magnanimous in meaning and in application. And any believer will be well served to know and understand these blessings and gospel nuances. If you backed way up and look at the New Testament at the gospel, there are so many theological descriptions that apply to the gospel that are worthy of a deep dive, that are worthy of worship-inducing study. 
For example, there's justification. That describes how a sinner is declared righteous before our holy God. There's adoption. We looked at that in Romans 8 and just a few weeks ago in Ephesians 1. That describes how an estranged sinner is made a son or daughter of God. There's reconciliation. That describes how a sinner stands before God as an enemy and then is turned into a friend. And then there's forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness describes how a sinner's debt of sin is paid and canceled against the holy God and redemption, which describes how a sinner stands before God as a slave to sin and Satan but receives freedom from sin and from Satan and is bought under precious new ownership. Well, for our study today, we're diving in next week, by the way. You'll notice it does say part one. It's going to take us a couple weeks to get through this. We're looking at redemption, which is a synonym for forgiveness and vice versa. We're going to be taking a deep dive today and next week into the glories of the doctrine of redemption. Now, first, a bit of orientation. I know that you know this, but this is just review for you. Paul begins Ephesians by celebrating the spiritual blessings that a believer has by being a Christian. He starts out by calling them saints and then says, because you're a saint, this is what you get. If you have faith in Christ, you have innumerable blessings that Paul begins to describe. And he starts with the doctrine of election, sovereign grace, which leads to adoption and our sanctification and a life of holiness. And as we study the doctrine of election, which is a sweet, assuring, refreshing reality to the believing heart, we took a five-week detour and looked at what we call the doctrines of grace that associate themselves with sovereign grace that flow out of the doctrine of election that we highlighted in verses 4 to 6. Now we come, after that description of election in verses 4 to 6, to another blessing, spiritual blessing that Paul describes as a result of our faith in Christ in verse 7. Here in verse 7, there's an abrupt change, by the way. You'll notice it if you look carefully, especially regarding time. He goes from eternity past in the doctrine of election, and then he goes to now and the future, looking at the doctrine of redemption. Eternity past to present and future. And the blessing he turns to for us to be amazed by is that of redemption. Redemption. I've broken this down this week and next week into five insights into the wonder of Christian redemption. Five insights into the wonder of Christian redemption. Now, if I were to talk to you about redemption most people in our world and in our generation don't know much about redemption except that you can redeem a Coke bottle or a milk bottle for a reward, for a five-cent deposit or for for some money. That's what we think about redeeming or we have a coupon where we, we redeem at the grocery store. Those are not even close to illustrating the doctrine of redemption. We're going to dive into it and study it better. Five insights into the wonder of Christian redemption. Let's look first at the source. The source of our redemption. That is Christ himself. Christ himself. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption. In him. 
Now, we are going to come back to this phrase over and over and over and over and over and over again in the book of Ephesians. In him, through him, because of him, in Christ, because of Christ, through Christ, all rooted in the source of our Savior. Now, remember the context here. We are in the midst of one long sentence that extends from verse 3 all the way to verse 14 in the Greek. It's the longest Greek sentence in the New Testament. And the theological connective tissue that strings all of the senses together is God's grace. He says three times to the praise of God's glory or to the praise of the glory of God's grace, what he's done for us. So verse 7 continues this description of what God's given us, of, of his spiritual blessings, of the glories of God's grace. And he begins with the foundation of understanding redemption. Listen, there is no redemption without a redeemer. The concept of redemption makes no sense unless it's personal and pointing to a redeemer. People are always searching for identity. How do you answer the question, who am I? How can I be known? How do I want to be known? What makes me accepted by others? Why am I liked? Why can't I be liked? Those are all questions of ontology or, or identity. What is your identity? It's amazing when you start bullet pointing how people try to identify themselves, how they try to, we try to find our identity. For example, in what you own or what you have, your possessions, bragging about showing what we own or possess, what we're getting, what we have tends to be our identity. Or the amount in your bank account and stock holdings. Hear people talking about trading and what they have and what they've lost and what they own and what they're buying. Where you live, even your home can be your identity. What you do, your job, your athleticism, what you enjoy doing, your recreation, how you act, that can be a, a source of your identity. What you enjoy doing with others, the talents you have, the things you can do or how you can do them. Your relationships can become your identity. Your children can become your identity. Your parents, your grandparents, your brothers, your sisters can become your identity, how you define yourself. Your children are often at the forefront of your discussions with others if you're a parent. Your fitness can become your identity. You know, I, I just recently dropped my gym membership because I wasn't going. And I was paying for it. And my wife helped shepherd me to know that that wasn't a good financial decision. So she said, go or drop the membership. Drop the membership. It's imp impressive to me, though, when you go to the gym and you see people <laughs> defining themselves and showing their identity. The mirrors in a gym. And then you, you, you see the guy and he's walking in the gym and he's okay. And then he sees the mirror and suddenly his lats get big. You know, and then he starts turning sideways. And it, it's just a... It's a textbook class on identity as people look at themselves. Your style can be your identity. Your clothes, your accessories, 
your looks, your physical traits, your hair, your intellect, what you know, your number of followers on social media can be your identity. The number of likes you get on Facebook or Twitter can, or Instagram can, can define you or be your identity. Even your reputation at church, how you serve, and what you do for Christ's name can wrongly promote yourself and your identity. We can go on and on and on the rest of the day, but hear this and hear it clearly and joyfully. No identity will ever supersede this, that you are in Christ. For a Christian, that is the most significant identifier of who we are. It is our identity. You think Paul believed that? The phrase in Christ or in him occurs, speaking about Christ, occurs 164 times in his letters. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in him. He told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creature, a new creation. Old things passed away, new things have come. He goes so far to say if you are in Christ, if you have faith in Christ, if you're a Christian, if you believe the gospel, you are fundamentally different than you were. You're a new person, a new man, a new woman. You're different. You're a new being, he says. Paul talks about this being in Christ in redemption. Look down the page in Ephesians 1.13. In him, there it is again, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed... You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, listen, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Listen to that identity. Our redemption by God means that we are possessed by God. We are in Christ, in him. Listen, dear Christian, Psalm 103 has an interesting phrase. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And bless the Lord, O my soul, listen, and forget none of his benefits, his gifts. Paul highlights that the greatest gift he's given us is to place us in solidarity in him, in Christ. What a benefit. So a believer's sense of belonging, sense of worth, sense of value, our sense of acceptance and love and contentment can and should all be found in Christ. If you're struggling with being content, if you're struggling finding happiness, if you're stuck in the quicksand of depression, if you feel like reaching for meaning and purpose is like trying to run fast in water, it's almost certain that you are finding your identity in something or some things other than Christ. In 
Him. He is the source. He says, in Him, we have redemption. In Him, we possess, we have, we have been redeemed. We are redeemed. What does this mean? Kent Hughes, one of my favorite authors, pastors, he's been here in our church, such a dear, dear shepherd. He recounts a story which has captured and informed imaginations for years. Perhaps you've heard it, but it's worth repeating. He says this, quote, In a city on the shore of a great lake lived a small boy who loved water and sailing. So deep was his fascination that he, with the help of his father, spent months and months making a beautiful model boat which he began to sail at the water's edge. One day, a sudden gust of wind caught the tiny boat and carried it far out into the lake and out of sight. Distraught, the boy returned home inconsolable. Day after day, he would walk the shores in search of his treasure, but always in vain. Then one day, as he was walking through town, he saw his beautiful boat in a store window. He approached the proprietor and announced his ownership, only to be told that it was not his, for he had, the owner had paid a local fisherman good money for that boat. If the boy wanted the boat, he would have to pay the price. And so the lad set himself to doing work of any kind, anything and everything he could until he returned to the store with enough money to buy the boat. At last, holding his precious boat in his arms, he said with great joy, you are now twice mine because I made you and because I bought you. That so wonderfully illustrates the point of redemption. It's a purchase. The theological reality of redemption is the payment of a price or a ransom for something precious. And verse 7 enlightens us that the price was the blood of Jesus himself, the death of Jesus Christ himself. And the object purchased was the souls of those who would believe. All of us, all of humanity is held captive on the slave market of sin without any power, without any ability to affect our own self-deliverance from sin, Satan, and self. But the Lord Jesus Christ purchased his church with an infinite price. First Peter 1, Peter says, knowing that you were not redeemed, there's our word, with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life you inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with precious blood as a lamb, unblemished blemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Which is exactly where Paul takes us next after talking about the source of our redemption being in him, he now takes us to the price of our redemption, Christ's sacrificial death. 
In him we have been bought or purchased. Come back to that in a moment. But look at this. Through his blood. Now be careful there. It surprises some to know that there was not a lot of bleeding that happened at the cross. Oh sure, Christ's forehead and temples were were bleeding. Some blood was uh, coming from those wounds from the thorned crown. No doubt that some blood came from the wounds which were inflicted on Christ's face and maybe a bloody nose and perhaps blood from his eyes or mouth from the, the blows he was taking. Certainly there was some blood coming from his hands and his feet where the nails pierced through. But Jesus didn't die from loss of blood. He didn't bleed to death. And that's important. Because this idea of blood is not just his bleeding. Otherwise, he would have gotten some some Petri dishes and and kind of bled in those and applied it to whoever would believe and it would be good. No, blood equals death. So when you see blood, that's a synonym for his death. Through his death is the same thing as saying through his blood. Our redemption was not cheap. The price... Jesus paid to purchase sinners for God was his life and his death. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. You have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. What price was that? His death. 1 Timothy 2, 6. Who gave himself as the ransom. That word ransom is the word for the price you would pay to redeem something. He gave himself as the redeeming price. Listen to how explicit Peter is. 1 Peter 1, 18. We looked at this a moment ago. Knowing you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life but you, that you inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood you were redeemed. Colossians 1, through him... God reconciles all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, having forgiven us all our transgressions, which is the next phrase Paul goes to, is forgiveness. Listen, it cost Christ his life for the forgiveness of sins and the redemption of our souls. Just turn over for a second to Ephesians 2, verse 13. But now, in Christ, there's our phrase again, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near how? By the blood of Christ. Do you think... Often, do you think deeply about the price of your redemption? Do you remember that your life is because of his death? That your happiness is because of his sorrow? How often do you think about the price of your redemption? If you don't know Christ today, right now, in this very moment, 
you can be delivered from the slave market of sin, be bought by the death and blood of Jesus Christ if you will believe that he did that for you. It's an amazing reality. You believe what he did and he saves you. That's justification being made right before God by faith, by simply believing. When we studied this in Romans, I remember saying over and over and over, it just sounds too good to be true. Look at what he did. Look at how he died. And all I have to do is believe what he did. We don't contribute anything to that. We believe what he did for us. Such an amazing reality. The price of our redemption is Christ's sacrificial death. Is that practical or just theological? That should dominate our thankfulness and our thinking. Let's look at just one more insight this morning into the wonder of Christian redemption, the source of our redemption, Christ himself, the price of our redemption, Christ's sacrificial death, and thirdly, the result of our redemption, forgiveness of sins. This is incredible. The result of our redemption, forgiveness of sin. Probably should say sins, plural, because it's plural here in the text. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, for you English teachers, work with me here and let's help the rest of us, okay? This is called an appositional phrase. An appositional phrase is a synonymous phrase. It's like saying, um, I want to introduce you to Charlie, my grandson. Those are describing the same things. That's called apposition. What he says is we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's appositional. In other words, redemption and the forgiveness of sins are synonyms. Theological synonyms. It's so amazing to me. The older I get, I just, I get more amazed by the reality that God forgives sins and that he forgives my sins. Micah chapter 7 verse 18. He says, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity, who passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast their sins into the depths of the sea. Forgiveness is not precious unless there's a forgiver. Just as redemption is not precious without a redeemer. There's a connection that exists theologically and certainly in Paul's mind between forgiveness of sins and redemption. And he highlights this in several places. You can clearly see it in Colossians and Romans. Colossians 1.13, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, listen, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, appositional, the same thing. 
Colossians 2.13, you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of the flesh, and he made you alive together with him. There's the cost with forgiveness and redemption. Romans 3.24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, God, whom God publicly displayed as propitiation in his blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because of the forbearance of God. He passed over the sins previously committed, redemption and forgiveness, in the same package. Have you come to a place, the same place David found himself, where you know your sin and guilt and you come to God for forgiveness? Have you come to a place where David came to in Psalm 25, verse 11, where he says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Only those who sense and feel and understand and know the depth and greatness of sin will truly appreciate the depth and greatness of forgiveness. If this falls flat on you, you're not in touch with your own sinfulness. We should feel like the psalmist felt in Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, O Lord, would mark our iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And the idea is like chicken scratches. One, two, three, four, cross. One, two, three, four, cross. One, two, three, four, cross. And this list of sins that we look at and observe in our own hearts just swells and swells. If you would mark them all, Lord, who could stand? Have you marked, have you marked your sins? Do you know how many and how deep they are? But verse 4 continues in Psalm 130. But... There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Colossians chapter 2, right in keeping with Psalm 130. Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. We read that a minute ago, but keep listening. Having canceled out the certificate, the record of our debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Paul talks about a certificate of debt, what we owe. You say, what does that mean? Well, he explains, consisting of decrees against us. It is a marking of our sin, and we all have it. That's our resume. Your resume is full of wicked acts toward God, against God. Your resume is self-justifying. It's self-glorifying. It's self-indulging, just like mine. It's decrees stacked up against us, and that list, friends, is long But notice what he says. That certificate, that accounting, that resume of debt against God was hostile to us, worthy to put us in hell. 
He says, God has taken it out of the way. How did he take it out of the way? Having nailed it to the cross. Let me ask you a question. You know the narrative, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Was there any certificate recorded that was nailed to the cross? No. What was nailed to the cross? Who was nailed to the cross? You hear what he's doing? He said our certificate of debt was nailed to the cross and we look and understand that what was nailed to the cross was Christ and we understand what Paul said to the Corinthians. He who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf that we might become reconciled and children and sons and daughters of God. He became sin for us, our sin. The perfect Lamb of God took our sin on himself, in his body, on himself, and died for us, instead of us, in place of us. Now, we can't leave this without understanding that there is a commensurate responsibility of those who are forgiven. Look over at Ephesians 4 for a minute. Just flip over there. We'll, we'll come back to Ephesians 1.7. When we get to Ephesians 4, but we have to go to Ephesians 4 while we're on 1 7. Verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Ephesians 4.30. For do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all meanness or malice. How? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as, Ephesians 1-7, God in Christ has forgiven you. Do you see that? Here's the principle stated plainly. Forgiven people are forgiving people. Forgiven people are forgiving people. We are called to forgive in response to having been forgiven. Here's a critical, critical question. How much have you been forgiven as a believer? Some? No. No. A lot? No. A lot, a lot? No. How about this? All sin is forgiven. There is no sin that God says, you're okay on this other stuff, but this one I'm going to hold against you. Uh, do you do that with anybody? Is there someone who stands beyond the reach of your forgiving heart? This is how we're to forgive others, the way Christ has forgiven us. How has Christ forgiven us? Completely. Completely. Jesus said in Matthew 6, pray like this. Forgive us our trespasses or our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do you hear what's going on there? 
forgive us commensurate to how we're forgiving others. Then he goes on to say, if, this is frightening, friends, if you forgive others, Matthew 6, 14, if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Forgiven people forgive. Forgiven people are forgiven, forgiving people. Boy, are you carrying any kind of grudge this morning? It could be a family member, it could be a neighbor, it could be a person at work, it could be a person at our church. Are you carrying a grudge? Love what John Piper says. If you hold a grudge, you doubt the judge. What does that mean? That Christ will pay for every sin either on the cross or they will pay for every sin forever in hell. If you do not forgive others, Jesus said, your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Let me say it as strongly as that verse just said. If you are unwilling to forgive someone an offense, you are not and cannot be saved. He says you're not forgiven if you won't forgive. It's that important. Freedom comes by forgiving as you have been forgiven. Would you turn over just for a moment, very briefly, to Matthew chapter 18? I wish we had time to dive deeper into this text because it shows both sides, God and his forgiving nature and us and our need to be forgivers. Peter, Matthew chapter 18, beginning of verse 21. Peter has a question for the Lord. He said to him, Matthew 18, 21, Lord, how often shall, I, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And then he gets really kind of proud of himself up to seven times, thinking that would be pretty noteworthy. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Now, the kingdom of heaven instantly introduces us to the fact that he is talking about salvation principles, what it means to be a resident, a citizen of the king of kings, of, of his kingdom. Verse 24, when he had begun to settle them, settling accounts, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, without getting into the depths of what 10,000 talents are, it would be more than anyone could ever pay in multiple lifetimes. It's like saying, you, are, you owe a billion dollars to someone and you have to make that up. Verse 25, but since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment be made. That's how severe it is. So the slave, understanding his, his debt, the impossibility of paying it back, fell to the ground, prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. 
Verse 27, look at this. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. That's the picture of God. He forgave him an unpayable debt. But, important word in verse 28, that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, 20 bucks, seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. Do you hear a hypocritical action here? So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. Does that sound familiar? But he was unwilling and he threw him into prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to the Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have also had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? And his Lord was moved, not with compassion this time, but with anger. And he handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. That's beyond his lifetime. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Paul and Jesus and Peter all link being forgiven to forgiving. Back to Psalm 103. Just listen. You can write these down. Verse 1. David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his blessings, his benefits. Forgiveness, is that one of them? Next phrase. Who pardons all your iniquities who heals all your diseases, who redeems, there's our word, redemption and forgiveness, redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Verse 10 of Psalm 103. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Have you ever thought about that illustration? You do know that the east is farther from the west than the north is farther from the south. Right? Go north. Eventually, you'll cross over the North Pole and you'll start going south. Go south, you'll cross over the South Pole and go north. There's an end to north and south. Go east. Is there an end? Go west. Is there an end? What is he saying? There is no connection. As far as the east is from the west, that's infinity. 
Oh, what a blessing. The experience of your forgiveness is not related to the size or intensity of your faith. It's not based on the amount of your tears. It's not conditioned by the degree of your regrets. Forgiveness is granted because of the goodness and grace and forgiving nature of God. What a God. Who is like the Lord who forgives sins? Revelation 5, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Are you forgiven? You'll know because you're forgiving. Have you been forgiven? Please, I would beg you, do not leave this building without the certificate of your debt being wiped out by the cross. How do you do that? By believing what he did for you. 